We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. But eventually, the LLM is what feeds the data from the top into the funnel. You can prioritize it in a good old way, saying if a customer comes from this company, liked X, Y, and Z content, then that might be a qualification for me to get in touch. And then obviously, you can also use it for the interaction itself. So you can customize different reach out messages. And most of the exchange leading to demo can be fully automated. What you just described there was an amazing funnel because you went from unstructured data to structured data to filtering it to qualifying it to then reaching out. I mean, that was a five-step process that originally I think you would need 10 data scientists to pitch in just on the first two steps. Totally. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Why, thank you, Fat Joe. Welcome back to Run the Numbers, where I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the investors who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the world of finance, strategy, and operations. Today, my guest is Dr. Andre Redaroth, an investing partner at Early Bird Capital. Andre, or the doc as I call him, has a PhD in AI and machine learning. Woo! He writes the popular data-driven VC substack and is one of the foremost thought leaders of the intersection of machine learning and data to make investment decisions within the private markets. On this episode, we cover the different levels of the AI tech stack and how value accrues between the application layer and large language models. We talk about if AI will serve to benefit incumbents with proven products or upstarts built on AI from the very beginning, how AI is changing back office functions for finance and operations folks, why large language models aren't necessarily built to deal with numbers, and his favorite decision-making frameworks. Andre, or the doc, gives us a glimpse into the trends he's seeing shape the office of the CFO and unpacks why most AI is really good but not great at what we need it to do. You know, I've always been a bit of a curmudgeon when it comes to AI adoption, thinking it was more sizzle than steak, especially for where I spend most of my day doing CFO-like things. Andre is very transparent on this episode on what AI does much better than finance workers of today and where it still needs to improve. All this and much, much more after a short word from our sponsors. CRMs are slow, hard to configure, and overly complicated. Adio changes that. Adio is a radically new type of CRM built specifically for the next generation of companies. It's flexible, easily configures to your unique data structure, and works for any go-to-market motion from self-serve to sales-led. Adio automatically enriches your contacts, syncs your emails and calendars, lets you create powerful custom reports, and quickly builds intricate Zapier-style automations. Say goodbye to one-size-fits-all CRMs and outdated user experiences. With Adio, you can focus on scaling your company to the next level. Try Adio instantly at adio.com. That's A-T-T-I-O.com. That is A-T-T-I-O.com. Dr. Andre, welcome to the pod. 
Thanks for having me, man. You're the first doctor we've ever had. So this is, this is groundbreaking. <laughs> the bar is high. I always like to joke at the beginning, like, hey, we're the, we're the top three podcast in like Lebanon or some random country. You're, you're calling in from Germany, right? Right, Munich. Munich. I think we actually are top five within business management in Munich. So we're just, we're just on a tear here. We're coming up in the world. Yeah, finally. Finally, breaking into the mainstream. So you have extensive experience within AI. You've been investing in it for a while at Early Bird Capital. And a lot of our listeners are on the finance side, and we're going to get into how AI is impacting what they do from finance strategy operations. But I wanted to just start out more broadly here. So can you talk about the different layers of the AI kind of stack and where value tends to accrue? Maybe we could just start there. Look, I think the, there are generally different frameworks and whatever expert and perspective you talk to, you will get probably a different framework. But from our view, as, as you also mentioned, like I've been on the developer operator side for a long time. I started researching and I then switched to the investing side. And for me, I think about the AI stack in a very simple way. It's four layers. On the lowest layer, you have the infrastructure layer, which is essentially everything from the NVIDIA's, HPE's, TSMC, ASML, really downstream. Then you have the next layer, which is the foundation large language model layer. This is essentially where most of these companies, including OpenAI, also Aleph Alpha, one of our portfolio companies, but many of the others like Kuhia, Anthropic, and so on, Mistral also have their core value proposition, but obviously most of these players expanded across the value chain, becoming mostly full stack. But that's the second layer on top of the infrastructure layer. At the highest level, we have this application layer. Application layer is literally every both end user, prosumer, but also professional application that we know. So stuff like Jasper, like Copy AI, like Midjourney and so on. So essentially LLMs bringing value to the customer in whatever different kind of use case. And what we saw evolving is the fourth layer. So that's the most recent one that evolved between the foundation LLM layer and the application layer, which is what we call the middle layer. So this middle layer is really everything, the, the, the picks and shovels for the gold rush, you can say. All of the stuff that is needed to bring LLMs into production. So we talk vector databases, vector ops, we talk racks and different kind of stuff. Got it. And I'm going to ask you throughout the podcast about applications or finance strategy and operations, like I was saying, are those at the third layer or fourth layer? Like where in that value stack am I, am I alluding to? So it, it depends. Like from a user's perspective, obviously, most of them are in the application layer, but it depends. There are some companies that actually build their own LLMs. So you might know like Bloomberg GPT, one example. So seemingly they take their existing data fine-tune or train an LLM and include it into their existing application and distribution. So that's an example for a full-stack player that might just come across as, as an application. But most of these companies are actually in the application layer. So most of these companies are just very thin wrappers on top of external LLMs. So they leverage external LLMs, take this data, fine-tune it, or put it into context with different kinds of regs, and then provide a quick solution for the customer. And would you say that thin wrapper, I, I'm, it, it makes me think that maybe that's not the most valuable part to be in, that we, we had spoken to Tony Kim of BlackRock, who runs their tech investment portfolio. And he said 
that it's kind of like gravity where the most value accrues to the layer at the bottom of the stack. So that would be layer one and two, which I think you were talking about. Would you agree with that? Or do you think there's still a lot of value to capture in layers three and four? Partially, yes. Partially, no. I think it's it's difficult to say because if you look at the stack, there's reason for all of these four layers. So the infra layer, the LLM layer, the middle layer, and the application layer. And this gravity aspect of it will sink down to the infrastructure layer, EI, the big hyperscalers will win and accrue most of the value. We've been thinking, writing, and also investing a lot into like value accrual in, in, in the AI value chain. And I think there are many arguments of why this might happen. However, you cannot look at it in an isolated way. It's also very important to look at the distribution component. So if we just look at the application layer, we can easily split it up into two kind of camps. One is the incumbents. Think of the Adobe, Photoshop, and so on kind of world. And the other one is the AI native players, for example, Copy AI, Jasper, Midjourney, and others. So if you compare it here, the AI native players might be able to deliver value generated through large language models faster to the customers because they can build AI native products. Whereas on the other hand side, you have incumbents like Adobe. They also launch different kind of Gen AI features, but they have the advantage of an existing distribution. So if we look at the application layer, for us, it's a lot about the distribution, access to customers, and actually building very strong Gen AI native products. And for us, the question becomes, who owns the distribution? Point in case, if you just look at OpenAI, I think super smart move because they saw that access to infrastructure becomes very critical, meaning the Microsoft collaboration has been like a super strong and, and anticipating a strategic move. But also, and that's even more important what most people underestimate, is actually the distribution component. So access into the whole MS suite was incredibly powerful because you could roll out the LLMs from OpenAI in due course. So you can say that most of the value will accrue in the lower layers, like the infrastructure and potentially in the LLM, even though, side note, I think the LLMs will also converge in performance. But I think it would be useless without the distribution. So also a lot of the value might accrue in the distribution. I'm so glad you brought this up because I remember when GitHub added Copilot and I thought that was groundbreaking, not necessarily for the technology itself, which is amazing, but it's like, hey, we already have tens of thousands of customers we can sell this into. So me putting on my finance lens, I look at it like it's going to be pretty damn hard to displace someone like an Anaplan or a NetSuite or someone who's been in this back office space for so long. Wouldn't it make more sense because they already have the customers and distribution for them to just build AI into their model as, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't use this word, but as a feature? It's, it's, it's a fair point. And if we look at historic waves of new platform technologies, this time it's different in the sense of the speed of adoption is way faster. If you look at huge incumbents and if you just looked around the launch of ChatGPT, which is like funny enough, if we just take one step back, Transformer models have been around since 2017, like the first paper, the attention is all you need paper. So it started evolving in the community. There was nothing new to have like this technique of building very powerful models. But I think what changed the game was, by the way, again, also middle layer slash application layer move, which is ChatGPT as an interface to the broader public. 
So when that happened in, I think, November 2022, everything changed. And if you look at the incumbents, just at the earnings calls, if you look at Q1 2023, it was like, okay, there is something out there. So also share all the expectations where you need to think about it. Q2, it was like, okay, what is our strategy? Q3, the latest, what are the options on the table? And then Q3 or Q4 was also, okay, we need to find the right partners, decide on make versus buy and have a clear strategy in terms of, if you look across all of the enterprises, most of the incumbents across industries, look into the earnings calls, this is exactly what happened. So it took them a year from the point of awareness to the point of action. And point of action here means you need to go beyond pilots. And this is different from if you look back into waves like the internet, if you look into, I don't know, cloud adoption, which today many incumbents still have on-prem infrastructure and so on. If you look into mobile and so on, this time it's very different because like the speed of adoption is way faster. But also again, side note, the adoption to we do a pilot, we do a commitment, we increase the budgets and so on. That's one step. But then actually getting it in production, rolling out the features is another one. And we can see that some manage well in the second phase. Some others are still a bit slower of moving beyond pilots, but overall, very fast adoption. It kind of brings me back to how everybody was using the word blockchain or Web3 in earnings calls, but nobody really got past that pilot stage to implement it, to create budget and to actually roll it out. What you're saying, Andre, is that companies are actually using this and rolling it out within a one-year time frame or four quarters, right? Yeah, I think what's, what's different here is back then, and we have many more platform technologies, but for the historic ones you mentioned, for example, blockchain, VR, AR, that was like we had, we had a hammer and we were looking for nails. <laughs> we had this amazing technology and with lots of imagination, we could think about different kinds of problems to solve. But in this case, it's the other way around. We actually know already the impact on productivity. So we can look at like what is the impact on productivity measured in terms of relation to GDP and so on. And we can see on a case-by-case, case, like just a couple of months after ChatGPT got launched, there was a study showing that, I don't know, I think it was BCG consultants increased their productivity while keeping the output on the quality level the same by around 40%. And that was like a couple of months after so we could see it on an individual worker level, but then also more holistically for the whole economy on the GDP level. So this was very different. We know exactly that it will make us more efficient. So automations, and then specifically, if you look at the strengths and the strong points of Gen AI, it's really about researching stuff, creating content and so on. And obviously we will go beyond it. But those are some amazing use cases that are pretty straightforward and you can implement into your existing products or create new ones around it. So we already have the use cases in mind. Would you argue that another expedient to this whole process is that there's an easier on-ramp for people to use it? I think you had alluded to the ability to just write in and chat. Like It seems pretty simple, but that is groundbreaking in a way, right? Yeah, if you look if you look at the structure of these large language models, even though like, they are still called large language models, but it's also also multi-model. So it does work for other data types, right? It also does work for images, for videos as a sequence of images. It does work for audience where you have different kinds of oscillations and so on. But the structure of the model still mostly applies. 
So the way of how we actually process text and for us humans, language is just a way of how to best communicate and exchange thoughts, for example. That's just the most natural way of interacting with each other. And until back then, we, of course, we had also like LSTM models, different kind of NLP techniques to actually process different kind of language. But suddenly it became way more powerful. And I think what you're referring to is really the change of introducing an interface that allows human to not do programming, but suddenly interact with these powerful models through natural language, a modality that is most natural to humans. So let's dig into that and apply it to finance strategy and ops, because, you know, we're not really writing poems. We're not writing dissertations. We're not always using language. We're using numbers, too. What are some ways that finance and sales ops teams have been using AI that, that you're seeing that you think are compelling? For us, it's number one, building a comprehensive funnel of opportunities. So this is number one. Suddenly, with generative AI or also large language models more broadly, you can actually process unstructured data. That's number one. So really bringing all of the data together. Then number two, actually making sense of this data. So for example, just very concrete, if we look for companies within a specific space, like historically what, what you would have done is you would have classified these companies, mostly classification in a manual way, or deterministic, meaning, for example, if we classify a company as a fintech, then we had, say, 100 different kind of labels. And if this label is spotted in the description or the website of the company, the company would be classified as fintech, for example. So you suddenly can do that with large language models without looking for as explicit labels in a way. So you semantically understand what the company is suddenly doing, and you can actually translate it into classifications that help us to more efficiently and also effectively process company information internally. So for example, we can route it to the right investment professional or whatever kind of case. Then if we go on into, let's say, the screening due diligence component, we can actually look at the company description, we can vectorize it, and then we can do vector comparison. So we can look for similar companies. We can suddenly map a competitive landscape without manually classifying these companies. So by the click of a button, you can suddenly, as an investor, you can map a competitive landscape. Those are just some report, uh, some, some use cases that we have, let's say, top of funnel. So building up the funnel, narrowing down the funnel in terms of screening and due diligence. But let's think a bit further. Let's say post-investment, and this is probably also then, then most interesting for, for finance professionals and operators. Think about reporting. Like everyone, both on the side of the people who create the reporting, but also on the other side of the, the coin where people are consuming the reporting, is annoyed. Like creating all of this text, creating all of this context, writing all of this together in terms of building the data pipeline of extracting the data, putting it in there, providing context, writing stuff up, but then also for the people consuming it. So for me, the reporting use case is one of the most straightforward ones that you can automate with large language models, just to name a couple of examples here. Well, you had hit on at first, it sounded like you were talking about data enrichment to a degree. What my mind goes to is how can I feed BDRs and sales reps better lead data for them to go out and try to sell more? Do you think AI will, will help with that 
trying to cleanse the data for the top of the funnel? I can tell you from experience, like we've, we've been building our data-driven infrastructure at EarlyBird for many years. Like I, I, I did my PhD back then in, in 2018 in this time, and we built web scrapers very manually. So to give you an example, we scraped public company registers, like in the UK, best example, Companies House back then. New company registration and funding, funding rounds were essentially documented in PDF documents. So you needed to, first of all, extract all of the PDFs. Then you need to run an OCR pipeline to extract the data. You need to process it and so on. One example. Another example, we've built very scalable web scrapers for different kind of primary sources that we were interested in. And building them, maintaining them, takes tons of time and resources. Now with large language models, it's way easier because you can actually walk through the web so if you work with different kind of large language models that are kept up to date, like that was a big problem back then when you looked at uh, GPT-3, for example, was quite outdated. At some point, you need to have cutoff point where you can actually train a model with the historic data, but the model will only be available thereafter. So at some point, the model is outdated and won't be able to interact with live data in the web. This is different now that you have techniques like Rex, for example, where you can take pre-trained model, but also include new data. So you can essentially live scrape the whole web and add additional information and context to the models so that you can interact with very much live data on the web. And this is incredibly powerful. This is to your question of the BDRs and SDRs. So if you can, with large language models, holistically collect all information in the web, unstructured, process it so that it becomes structured, and then filter it. Like nobody is interested in looking at a pipeline of tens of millions of different leads. You want to talk to the right leads at the right point in time. So the question becomes, what is the heuristic or model you put on top for qualification? So this, let's say, is, is adjacent to LLMs, but this is more statistical, very, very, very fundamental. What does a good lead look like for you? So you need to put the rules out there. You need to codify it in a way and you can do that either deterministically or you can do that through statistical approaches, like you take a data set and train your prioritization model. But eventually, the LLM is what feeds the data from the top into the funnel. You can prioritize it in a good old way, saying, I don't know, if a customer comes from this company, I don't know, liked X, Y, and Z content, then that might be a qualification for me to get in touch. And then obviously you can also use it for the interaction itself. So you can customize different reach out messages and most of the exchange leading to demo can be fully automated. What you just described there was an amazing funnel because you went from unstructured data to structured data, to filtering it, to qualifying it, to then reaching out. I mean, that was a five-step process that originally I think you would need 10 data scientists to pitch in just on the first two steps. Totally. I talk now from a venture capitalist perspective, but what we do is also sales in a way, right? So we have two-sided sales process where on the one hand side, we need to collect money from LPs. So obviously, if you want to raise a new fund, you need to build a pipeline. You need to qualify LP leads. You need to prioritize them. So it's the same like you just described in the five steps. And eventually, we raise the fund. Now, once we have the fund, we start deploying it and investing into the most ambitious, most successful founders. Meaning again, we need to build a pipeline. So we take unstructured data. We oftentimes take 
like we look a lot at the digital footprints of these founders. But of course, we also have like human relationship. So both for the LP side, but also the founder side. So we still have established networks that leads might come in. So we have this funnel of, let's say, automated, where it's mostly outbound. So we build this funnel, unstructured data, structured data. We process it, we prioritize it, and then we interact with the founders. So we have a dialogue and then we schedule, let's say, an intro call. That's one way, but that's the founder funnel in a way. And then, of course, in addition to this, let's say, automated way, we still have the good old traditional inbound. Our network tells us, look, Andre, there is this great founder. She wants to talk to you. So they obviously, at least most of them, bypass this funnel where we still need to collect additional data and so on. And we jump into the call right away. What you're describing reminds me a lot of what Daniel Paris, he's a friend of the pod. He was one of the initial data scientists at DoorDash in its early days, way pre before IPO. He also writes a newsletter called Stat Significant. And what he had done is build their first lead scoring model to basically figure out which restaurants would do the best on the platform. And he went like across all of San Francisco and had to score them based on different characteristics. Then that was fed to the sales team in a way that was digestible for them, but also so they could basically prioritize which ones would be the best leads to go after. And I think like what you're describing, like whether you're in venture capital, whether you're working for a marketplace, whether you're working for a B2B SaaS, AI can help you get to that kind of hot lead faster than you would normally. This is 100% true. And I think one major difference from the restaurant example to our example of investing into founders, probably again different to, to operators in the startup world, we are investing into founders and startups which is per definition very unpredictable in a way. And there are many opponents who say you cannot predict the likelihood of success of startups and so on. Historic data shows, backtesting shows, you can in a way, like we just want to create alpha. We just want to outperform the market, right? So to a degree, even though it's mostly unpredictable, you can predict it good enough to prioritize in the right leads. And this is just very important. And I think this is true for, for everyone with large language models, with proper automation, and also with partially, this has little to do with large language models, but very much data science methods, you can prioritize the right opportunities and build your funnel. That's about how to prioritize opportunities. But what I want to get to next is how to mitigate risks. Have you seen any ways that is helping CFOs like me or chief risk officers or chief legal officers assess risk more effectively? This is an interesting question. So far, I think it's mostly explorative in a way, and it depends a lot on the context. So obviously, we all deal with tons of contracts. So you can also see with large language models that you can actually search contracts. So for example, we also have a portfolio company that is working in that domain. So they have a semantic layer that you can apply for different kinds of contracts. And essentially, you can check all of the contracts, whether something is in there in a positive sense that needs to be in there or shouldn't be in there in a negative sense. So you can semantically essentially create a bullet list of like, I don't know, these items need to be in there. This shouldn't be in the contract. And then you semantically scan the whole contract and you flag specific passages if something is in there, if something is missing, and if something is in there that shouldn't be in there. So this is a perfect example of large language models that you can apply to every work that is related to contracts. 
that's number one. Number two is the reporting side that I just mentioned. So with another portfolio company, I mentioned before that, that we are investor in Aleph Alpha. Aleph Alpha essentially is a full stack provider in the large language model space with the position from the very beginning. So enterprises and governments, so public organizations that deal with highly critical information and data. And some of their customers, also actually some of US customers in the finance sector, actually explore it for reporting use cases. So essentially generating reportings for their investors, for their shareholders, but on the other hand side, also extracting information from reportings into a standardized way. So I know many fund managers out there, specifically fund of fund managers. We also know that from our LP base that have invested into multiple GPs, so multiple VC firms, and they need to extract the information from different kinds of reporting. And all of the reportings are in a different structure. So some use this platform, another one uses this platform, some use PDF, some actually send you a, a, a Word document, some send you an Excel file. It's a completely different structure, it's completely different information. You need to all look it up manually. And the good thing is, if you manage multiple assets, you can actually use large language models to take this data from different structures and bring it into unified structure that you prefer. And this logic of use case certainly also applies for operators, be that CFOs, be that people in legal positions whatsoever. So whenever you work with as a data orchestrator in a way, you orchestrate data, you aggregate it from different kinds of sources and different kinds of structures, and you need to bring it into a unified way. Like everyone should have tens of use cases in mind if I'm talking about that. This is something you can perfectly automate with large language models. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. As a SaaS CFO, I know firsthand how difficult it is to report on SaaS metrics. We've all seen a deal close at the end of the month, but the customer's contract doesn't actually start until the middle of the next month, creating the classic discrepancy between bookings or committed ARR and actual ARR, the real stuff. That's why I'm so pumped to be partnering with Maxio, a company trusted by thousands of SaaS companies to understand these reporting nuances. They basically built and automated the SaaS dashboard I tried to manually cobble together for three years. In 2022, SaaS Optics and Chargeify combined to become Maxio, the only billing and financial operations platform that was purpose-built for B2B SaaS. They're helping SaaS finance teams automate billing and RevRec, manage collections and payments, and put together investor-grade reporting packages. Visit maxio.com slash run the numbers to learn how Maxio can help you supercharge financial operations in 2024. Request a demo using the Run the Numbers link and receive a 10% discount on your first year with Maxio. That's maxio.com forward slash run the numbers. Well, you know what I always say, maintaining compliance is never complete, which is why most security and IT teams feel like they're always in audit purgatory. (laughs) I'm there right now. But there is a solution and it's easier than you think. Escape the infinite loop by using ThoroughPass's compliance and audit solution. ThoroughPass is the only solution using AI-infused technology and in-house auditors to take your team from start to stamp without leaving the platform. As a winner of multiple G2 awards, including top awards for usability and service, your team is in good hands with ThoroughPass. From onboarding with dedicated experts to audits from in-house auditors who know every aspect of your framework needs, you can have complete confidence in your ThoroughPass compliance journey. 
ThoroughPass is the only solution to offer audits for your most needed security frameworks. I'm talking HIPAA to HITRUST and SOC2 to ISO 27001. Woo! If you need PCI, DSS, pen tests, or any other major compliance framework, ThoroughPass can hook you up. With ThoroughPass, you never need to worry again. Relax, we fix audits. Find more at ThoroughPass.com. That's T H O R O P A S S.com. Tell me, boy, CJ sent you. They'll hook you up. Boom. The biggest game changer for me has been helping to read through contracts and summarize them. So I have to read through, like I always joke with people, the biggest change becoming a CFO for the first time was just the sheer number of agreements and contracts I had to read through. Like no one teaches you that when you're coming up in FP&A or accounting, like, hey, dude, you're going to have to read through like a 70 page procurement contract for like an ERP. Like, okay, but it can help you summarize that. It can also help you write contracts. So you could say, dirty secret, the sponsors for this podcast right now, the agreement that they signed was done by ChatGPT. But like it can help you come up with a lot of agreements and structures for partnerships that otherwise I think you'd have to hire an extremely expensive lawyer to do. I think it's still very important that, let's say it like that, these models likely perform on an expert level, but not on the 10x expert. So if you just take the example we spoke earlier about GitHub Copilot, GitHub Copilot probably is capable of delivering software at, let's say, an 80, 90 percentile quality, but it won't be able to deliver on this like 99 percentile. Yeah, the, the fabled 10x developer. Exactly. And this is probably also true for many of the other dimensions as of today and also going forward. Like, LLMs are perfect in delivering average work. So if they learn from a body of data, they are perfect at delivering the average expected outcome. But if you have some, let's say, very unique cases that such a model has never seen before, where you need to become creative, yes, it can also combine and try to solve new problems in a creative way, but it might not deliver it at the quality of the 10x lawyer, the 10x CFO. That's a great line. They're perfect at delivering average work. And I'm actually going to push back because I have had some experience where I think it was below average work. And that's with the reporting and analysis function, where if I upload a PL or I give them my financial data and I say, can you summarize what's going on here? Sometimes I've gotten responses back like, Revenue is up because sales are up 10%. It's like, well, no shit. You're like, I, I could have told you that. Well, why, why do you think the reporting and analysis piece, like, I, I get that it reports accurately, but why isn't the analysis piece there when it comes to financial statements and the like? You had LSTM models back then, which essentially predicted the likelihood of a next word in a sentence being X. So the weather is, and then depending on the context, I'm based in Munich. It is February, so the weather is most likely snowy, rainy, whatever. So you will see the different kind of likelihoods. And this is also, in, in, in a nutshell, how these LLMs work. So considering the context around it, and context can be the words and sentences before, the pages before and after, for example, considering this context, it predicts the most likely next steps, right? So it was mostly trained on words. Of course, it also considers code. It considers uh, numbers and numbers and developer speech, uh, different kind of integers, real numbers, and so on. So you have different kind of formats. 
And the problem is that these models sometimes struggle if you just provide them different kind of numbers. So they actually lack the proper context, which is easier for them to understand language. So that's like very easily said. Technically, we would need to go into a bit more detail to fully understand why they are not sometimes not as good with numbers, but that's the background. Yeah, because I figure like I'm giving you specific numbers. Shouldn't this be the easiest thing to return to me? But if I'm playing it back to you, you're saying they need the qualitative context in order to make an assessment. Yeah. Starting to talk about downsides, there is also beyond, let's say, limited capabilities of handling numbers or specific data structures, data types. There is also hallucination and other downsides that we need to be aware of. And specifically for everyone working in mission critical contexts, like awareness of the shortcomings of these models is super key. So going back to where we came from, I think they are amazing of doing like the average work if we talk about generation. So we let's let's split up the general use cases in one is the consuming part, the researching part, which is we build a funnel of startups, we need to research them or of leads for the salesperson and so on. We need to qualify it, we need to structure the data and so on. Like there's very little risk involved. But at the point you get into the generation part, which is the second component, you start creating something. Like you start drafting a reach out email. Like if you send out this reach out email to a founder without, let's say, a checkpoint of a human being, there's a downside risk. Like if we as early bird would send out tens of thousands of messages to founders, just like super randomly, we might get the image of being like completely spammy, whatever the model has written in the, in the, in the email, there's actually like proper downside of it. And I think it becomes even worse if you think about legal contracts. Like if you draft a legal contract and you just have the model submitted, you actually run into a big, big problem because there's a downside risk. So we need to rethink these whole processes in terms of consumption, using LLMs for research and consuming. And the other one is for generation. And if we talk about generation, we probably need more checkpoints and smarter ways of interacting with these Gen AI models in a way. So we might, let's say, for the foreseeable future, in some use cases, it also depends a lot on the use case, need a human in the loop. For some other use cases, which are, let's say, less risky, then it might be actually sufficient to have them run without a checkpoint. You use the term hallucinations. Can you break that down? What does it mean? Hallucination means that the model based on the training corpus it received to actually get trained on the weights and capabilities it has believes for a new prompt. So the user prompts the model, it asks a question, for example, the model relies back on the training corpus and presents an answer and it has a high confidence that this answer is right, even though it is obviously wrong. And that's a problem that the model itself believes this is right and has confidence this is right and the user obviously perceives like this this is wrong hopefully in most cases the user perceives this is that because you fed it crappy data is it essentially the user's fault though not necessarily there might like there can be many different reasons for that it might be that you have conflicting data for example based on the wide corpus of data that you got trained on it might be that in some cases there is actually evidence for solution A, let's say, and in some there is evidence for solution B. And the model might just mix it up based on, let's say, wrong or limited context available. Got it. 
Well, maybe to make some of this a little more real, I'm going to throw four potential scenarios at you. And maybe you can riff on one or two if you can think of use cases. So in my world, in finance, when I think about AI and machine learning, the first kind of buckets of potential use cases, fraud detection is one, dynamic pricing models is another, credit scores, a third, and insider trading would be a fourth. Do any of those resonate to you as potential use cases or fascinating things you're seeing? I'd say from, for partial components for all of them. Um, for all of them, you need to collect data. For all of them, you need to research data. For example, the, let's say, pricing. Like pricing, you need tons of data. You need tons of historic data. You need context to actually predict it. But these models already work well with traditional statistical approaches. And I'm not sure if they would work, also given that the pricing works a lot with, with numerical data, would work better with LLMs or is even doable with LLMs. However, we might use LLMs to actually provide more context to the models so that the models can actually adjust. Second one that, that comes to mind, fraud detection. So for fraud detection, also the context is incredibly important. So we can use LLMs to actually collect and process the data to get the right context to then classify, is this a fraud or not? So for fraud detection models, you might actually use LLMs to actually increase the confidence score of the traditional scoring model. Got it. And the dynamic pricing piece, that makes a lot of sense because there have been a lot of quants and a lot of stat heads that have been around for a while. We had interviewed Rich Gotham, who's the president of the Celtics, and he was saying even 10 years ago, they'd started to do dynamic pricing and using statistical models to figure out when's the best time to sell the best ticket to the right person. So what you said resonates a lot. So at this point, what I want to do is take you into what we call our long ass lightning round. So we're going to get to know you a little bit better outside of this AI stuff. So do you have any frameworks that you use in your job to make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis? What, what frameworks do you use when, when something tough comes across your desk and, and you have to prioritize? That's an interesting one. I mean, I love frameworks because frameworks are a way of breaking down very complex situations, problems, and focusing and conveying them in a very simple way. So one that worked really nicely for me, like SABC, you can always take this next call. So you will never have enough time. You would always need to meet this next founder because it could be eventually this one outlier founder, right? So what is a very important framework for me is actually the Eisenhower matrix, which has is a two by two matrix, which is important and urgent. And I try to, like, I have internalized it that much that I apply it to whatever I'm doing, no matter if it's email, no matter if it's interaction in the portfolio with LPs, meeting new founders and so on. So there are different levels within the professional work, but you can also take that to your private life and beyond. So Eisenhower matrix of classifying everything a lot across important and urgent. What's the difference between the two, Andre? A very urgent topic, you have a deadline for something. This means a topic is super, super urgent. But it might actually be just, I don't know, submit your uh, your lunch preferences within your team if you have the team dinner. So that's an example for something that is probably super urgent because otherwise they will order without you. But it's not important at all. Like you, you won't starve this lunch. 
On the other hand side, if you have, for example, you need to attend your own wedding or your baby is born, then this is incredibly important. But if you're anticipating it months ahead, this is not urgent, right? But if the point in time comes, then suddenly this becomes super urgent. So, for example, the wedding next year that you are just planning ahead for is something that is incredibly important, but not too urgent at this time. But at some point, it moves on the line and becomes more urgent. On the other hand side, if you have more short-term stuff that might be incredibly urgent, but not too important, it actually helps you to prioritize all of the different topics. That's a good one. I'm going to use that in my daily life because I fall too often become victim to, to the urgent. The second one on that one is actually, and that's, that's probably most common for VC investors, is the Pareto principle. So the 80-20, right? So venture capital by nature is Pareto driven. So it's power law distribution with a higher alpha coefficient means less than 10% of the portfolio make up for more than 90% of the returns. So that's early stage venture Pareto distribution. You got to admit, though, it is kind of funny that the ones that are the outliers probably need the least amount of attention and work from you because they're doing so well. In many cases, this is true. This is actually true, but it's not always true. It also depends. There are times where some companies need more attention and then eventually pick up. If you look at many of these successful outlier cases, they were not always that obvious, right? So for us, it's important to focus our attention on the outlier cases and try to help them become even bigger, even faster, right? And not spend too much time with the ones that in reality don't even have a chance anymore to become a big outlier. Yeah, I had a VC once say to me, it's kind of ironic that I know I'm playing a power law game, but I end up spending 80% of my time on the companies that are going to drive like less than 20% of my returns. And I think that's the very kind human nature that actually you try to help those that have a problem that are not succeeding so there is also a saying that essentially your returns are made by the outliers but your reputation is made by the downside cases so i think it's a nice trade-off to actually spend sufficient time with the ones in the lower and middle bucket until it's obvious they won't they won't deliver anymore. So you need to have a frank conversation with the founders. But in reality, I think this is true for all investors, all early stage investors. We should spend more time with the outliers. I love how you brought it back to the human element there, right? Because it's how you treat the ones who may not be performing at the time. And something that is currency in the business and that you can't pay for is, is your reputation. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So I think that it's an old saying that I learned many years ago, but I think it's, it's, it's very much true. And even though like, I've been proliferating and talking a lot about data-driven innovation and AI and venture capital, just given my very quantitative data background, I also came to the conclusion that specifically for early-stage venture, with the value proposition of being a lead investor, it will never be fully automated. So I strongly believe in an augmented approach where you have best of both worlds. Algorithms, large language models, computers doing what they can do best, which is data collection, data processing, prioritizing, scoring, considering full context. Yeah, we, human, we are biased. We, we cannot neglect that we are biased. So these models are better in considering the whole sample. But then at some point, it flips around. Like you need to sit together with the entrepreneur. You need to look each other in the eyes. Like, do we want to do this together? Do we want to work together for the next five, six, seven, eight years? 
And then it's also, you need to see this fire burning in the entrepreneur's eyes. This is just very important. And even though you can, let's say, approximate this, like grid and so on, through different kind of characteristical tests and so on, there is still this human element. And eventually it flips around. Like the founders don't want to have an algorithm on their board. The founders want to have humans they can call if shit hits the fan. They want to have people who are not just providing great advice, but people who also feel them. Like they are, they are, they are here for you. And I think this is this is very important, and this is very much true in the future of work. Like even though we are undergoing massive disruption and transformation of work as we know it. I'm sure there is still a place for humans very long term in all of the different kind of functions, even though it might change in terms of the scope and form that we know it. You have to blend the best of both, right? Like you can get to maybe the process in which you're making a decision faster using these large language models, but you can never take the human element out of it and be the one to finally make that decision. Because like you were saying, it's, it's, it's hard to screen for things like grit adaptability and agreeableness. Those aren't just going to show up in your model because you had a web scraper. Like you may be able to cut down the pool of applicants a lot faster, but there is that human element and large language model can't like sit down and look you across the table and and figure out like, are you going to run through a wall? We are working on that, man. Funny enough, there is a team back then was uh, involved in Cambridge Analytica. And essentially what they did is take your social media interactions to predict your big size character traits. And it statistically worked, right? So if you like Nike, you are likely more of an extrovert versus if you like Adidas, you might be more of an introvert. Simply said, obviously you have way more data points. So you can take these big five character traits and then actually, and we, we do stuff like that. We also use it to look for potential founder conflicts and so on. But in reality, the human component is still super, super important. However, one side note, there are also quant funds where I think you can actually automate majority if you're just a follower fund and you just want to create alpha, not having human involved too much. So we would see both the change in form as we know it today, but also change in, let's say, kind of new organizations in a way. And you had written about this recently saying that, you know, Kind of machine learning and taking a mathematical approach to things first came for public equities and quants, but now it's making its way into the VC world. Finally, like I try to look around and see what we can learn from other industries. And also for me, like coming from this whole data background into VC is also cross-subject discipline, right? So I, I didn't know anything about VC if you asked me 10 years ago, but I knew a bit about data. So I think this this cross-subject combination is incredibly important. And I try to look around, like, what can we learn? If you look at the public market and then also at the hedge fund industry in the 1980s, they've been all humans. It was mostly old Wall Street veterans walking around, investing into their friends, having, let's say, uh, preferred access to information to frame it nicely and they were able to generate alpha but suddenly you had widespread adoption of data on public companies and people started to play around with models and suddenly you had these quant funds like today more than 75 percent of the market actually classifies quant funds and they seemingly outperformed the more traditional human-led funds and I think the same is true for venture even though I remember when I started having these conversations many people said 
you can't automate venture, it's all human, it's all qualitative, it's private data, none of this is available and so on, which is yes, like the data is available. There are digital footprints of founders on companies. It's just a matter of how to process this mostly unstructured data and make sense of it. To use an analogy, do you think that there's a Steve Cohen-esque fund in VC today? Or if not, do you think there'll be one tomorrow? 100% I believe it is It is changing. I've been observing this whole space. Even 10 years back, there were a few funds who started playing around with it. But I think the timing was just not right. So if you look at it, you always need three components. One is you need the models, like the algorithms. Number two is you need data. And number three is you need the compute power. And back then, we just had the compute power. We had different kind of GPUs combined instead of CPUs beforehand. And what was lacking is really the way the algorithms worked. So the transformers, as we just learned in the past seven years, plus also the data, like big data was just on the rise. And this is why many funds actually, like of these few that started, discontinued their efforts. And I think the timing in the past five years is better than ever before. So now we see like all stars are aligned. And I expect we will see pure quant funds. We will see data-driven funds that have data at the core going forward. We will see that many traditional funds need to transform themselves. We will see different kind of uh, new network uh, funds that are mostly solo and micro funds that purely rely on a network. So the whole venture industry, and this is what I'm convinced of, will undergo a massive transformation. Like the future of VC will look completely different than we know it today. Let's make that a little more real. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep your stack. Sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. Can you walk me through what your VC software stack is today? What are you working with to get the job done? In a very simple way. So essentially, let's start again top of funnel. So we need to collect the data and we build very scalable web crawlers. So you can build one web crawler per source. Let's say you talk about whatever, a GitHub, Product Hunt, LinkedIn, Grant, databases, and so on. So if you build a crawler for all of these websites, they will be different in terms of structure. So to keep the maintenance low, you try to abstract them away. So you try to introduce a deterministic logic-based approach that independent of the underlying changes on the website, for example, that you are scraping, don't need maintenance, but still work. So we spend significant time of building such scalable web scrapers. Then you need to execute them. So you can execute them from one IP, but at some point they will get blocked. So essentially you are emulating human behavior. So what you would need is essentially different kind of proxy servers, right? There are different providers that you can work with. What's very important to me is we would never circumvent terms and conditions. So we would not do something that is gray or even obviously not allowed. We only do the stuff that is allowed by the terms and conditions. So if we are required to buy a license for these databases, we do have a license for these databases. And then essentially we collect the data as much as it is possible. 
And then this is what we call the primary data collection. Now you need to run that in a scheduled way. Like you need to execute these crawlers every night, every second day, every week, whatsoever. And we use, for example, Airflow, which is a scheduler there. And then we throw this into the data lake. This is what we call the primary data collection. Now the secondary data collection is essentially external databases. I published a paper back then benchmarking different startup databases like Crunchbase, CB Insights, Pitbook, DRoom, Traction, VentureSource, and so on. And essentially, we work with different kind of data providers where we integrate into the APIs or take the data dumps. So we also throw that into our data lake. And then the third component is we actually work with Affinity. Affinity is a VC-focused CRM system. We've been one of the very first customers back then. And what they have done fantastically nice is building a knowledge graph, a social graph. Like they integrate into your email and calendar and they figure out who you've been in touch with and essentially map all of these personal relationships. So we also take, let's say, this knowledge graph in terms of our social capital in the firm and all of the relationships. And what we do in the next step we take this primary data, the secondary data, and our network data, and essentially merge that all together. So this is what we call entity matching or deduplication. So obviously, you might have one founder multiple times in different sources. So one example, you think about starting a company tomorrow. So you text in Reddit, I'm looking for a co-founder. So what we would do is you would get an entry in our database. Now, let's say next week you put into your LinkedIn starting something new or stealth mode or whatever. Like we have 100 plus classifications for this one. So you would get a second entry. Then I don't know what your public register is called. Let's say here in Germany, it's called Handelsregister. So you would officially register your company. It's called Handelsregister. You would get a third entry. Now, the problem is we don't want to get three or more entries for you. We just want to get one single source of proof. So we need to do the duplication and remove essentially the duplicates and merge these entities together. So that's one of the biggest data science challenge I can tell for experience. We had different people spending years to get this done right. And I think we, we have done really well in this. And once you have these unified entries, you can think of like in a simplified way, you can think about the database as an Excel sheet where every row is essentially one company and every column is one feature of the company. So the let's say the headquarter, founding date, commercial track, headcount data, and so on. And obviously, we don't to take a snapshot just today, but we take it over time. So this is the third dimension that we take these snapshots mostly every single day and essentially look at the differences or so the diffs between the changes. And that now leads to the component where we spoke about prioritization and screening where essentially we have built different kind of deterministic, but also statistical and machine learning based models that help us to predict the likelihood of success of companies to actually prioritize the right opportunities. So this is the top of funnel, like sourcing, screening, and then we get into the due diligence component. For this, we have used different kinds of LLMs, where, for example, we take these vectors and look for similar companies in a way. So this is essentially what is on in the backend stack. And then I will, I will spare you with more details here, but the most important then is to actually make the data actionable. Means you actually need to create your own web application and front end to have your investment professionals interact with the data. 
You just pass the guy the ball and let him cook. That was amazing. Andre, I, I think we're going to wrap it there. Where can people find more of you if, if they want more data-driven VC here? For data-driven VC, I'm writing weekly and put out different kind of reports, studies. It's just datadrivenvc.io. This is my newsletter. And then obviously for all the stuff related to EarlyBird, EarlyBird.com, pan-European investor, bit more than two billion assets under management, investing mostly pre-seed, seed, Series A into the most ambitious founders. So this is what we're here for. My friend, this has been a masterclass in how to apply AI to finance and beyond. Thanks so much for being generous with your time. Amazing. Thanks for having me. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.